Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back, folks. We're joined by Dr. Joe Cantor, the state health officer for the state of Louisiana. Doc, welcome to the show. Thank you, Newell. It's good to be back with you. Doc, uh, let's uh, jump right into any COVID update. COVID's been going down. Um, we had a small little peak um, around around New Year's time, and, and that's been going down. That, that really barely registered, I think, in terms of hospitalizations and so forth. A lot of transmission, but not a lot of people getting sick enough to be hospitalized. Um, flu is also going down. Thankfully, we're, we're, we're no longer the nation's leader in flu cases. That title belongs to Tennessee right now. So we seem to have peaked. This was, you know, an above-average flu season for us, and it's been about two or three weeks of consistent decline for influenza cases, which I'm very thankful for. Um, anything else out there? I know we had uh, RSV uh, floating around. Is that on a downward trend as well? It is. You know, I mean, the thing I would say is um, flu seasons are always unpredictable. And, and we've had plenty of flu seasons in the past where we would have a peak, go down, and then a few months later, a few months later, go back up. That's certainly possible. So we're not out of the woods on this. We had a fortuitous season of respiratory viruses this year in at least one respect, and that's we got our RSV surge out of the way early. We had a very early RSV surge a few months ago, and RSV was going down well before flu started going up in earnest. So that saved hospitals a lot. So they didn't have, you know, the twindemic of both of those viruses peaking at the same time. So now we're just keeping our eye on flu. Again, it's been two or three weeks of downward trends with flu. We, to remind folks, we got off to a very fast start in flu this year. We led the nation in flu cases for about a month. Um, now it seems like, you know, we had an earlier peak, so we're having an earlier decline right now. The absolute rate is still very high, about 12 or 13% of all ER visits in the state are due to people 
with respiratory virus, most of which is flu. So there still is a lot of flu being spread, but we're on the downward trend swing. And again, I, I hope we stay that way, although it's certainly possible we tip back up as we have in some years past. Um, also, I think we were monitoring syphilis. Where are we there? Yeah, <clears throat> we're always monitoring syphilis. You know, no good news, unfortunately. You know, we <clears throat> every year when you look across all um, STDs, you know, syphilis, gonorrhea, chlamydia, and, and HIV in some aspects, you know, we're, we're easily in the top 10, if not in the top five, and that's not in the top two or three states in the country. And, and this, this is no different. We have a lot of syphilis out there because we have a lot of syphilis. We have a lot of congenital syphilis when, when the mother who's infected unknowingly passes it to a newborn baby. And, and, and those cases can be devastating. They can result in neonatal death. They can result in terrible birth malformations. It's a really terrible thing. And, and the, 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 the tragic irony of it is it's pretty easily treated once you know about it. Um, we dealt with a shortage of penicillin. That's in the middle to late 2023. That's gotten much better. So we're no longer in a shortage situation. So really the only limiting factor to being able to tamp down these cases, particularly of congenital syphilis, is just diagnosing it. But um, we see a lot of women that unfortunately have been complete prenatal care, um, despite syphilis being it's it's required by law in Louisiana to be tested at least twice during pregnancy. That doesn't always happen for any number of reasons. And so we're working hard to fix those. But, you know, progress is very slow, unfortunately. I think this is going to continue to be a big issue for the next few years. And really, you want to get your hands on it, right? Because you don't want it running away from you. I mean, it it. it... It, when you look at it, 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 it can have some of the same trajectory that we had early onset with HIV. Yeah, no question. And, you know, this has gotten in recent months a lot of attention nationally. The, the CDC and the U.S. Um, Health and Human Services Department has put a lot of focus on it. They've, they've instituted some signature campaigns around it. And that really is because a few other states have now reached the high level of syphilis that Louisiana and some of our neighboring states have known for a while. So it's not that the rates here have gotten that much out of control, but there's been other states that have now reached the level that, that are close to it, at least, that, that we've been at. And, and again, there's, you know, the, the reason why this is such a gut punch, there are so many things in medicine that we don't have good treatments or cures for, you know, so many things. So when you have something as potentially damaging as congenital syphilis and you have a really easy and cheap treatment for it and you just can't get your hand around the problem despite that, you know, that's really unacceptable. So that's, that's, that's why I think you see so much focus on it combined with the increase in rates in some other states. You know, I, I think all in all, the attention is welcome. And I think the, the national health apparatus is directing energy and attention towards syphilis now in a way they have not in at least 20 years. And so hopefully, hopefully some good comes from that. I, I read a series of articles about um, 
I don't know if this is the proper terminology to use, but a resurgence of HIV. Um, and there was a study that that was reported on, came out this morning in, in Stat News about um, um, the numbers which were kind of telling uh, in the transgender women woman uh, population. Yeah. What do y'all, are, are there discussions at, at your level, public health directors across the country relative to that? Certainly. And it's a highly stigmatized population. It's a population that doesn't always feel comfortable seeking care. Um, you know, I can tell you in New Orleans, there are excellent clinics that do a wonderful job um, with this population and, and, and are culturally competent and, and just world class. Outside of New Orleans in Louisiana, that's not always the case. And so it's understandable that transgender individuals might not feel comfortable seeking care. They, they might not want to be judged or feel like they're being judged by the medical provider that they're seeing and a whole host of other reasons. They're highly stigmatized. And, um, you know, they, they're, by the way, their suicide rates in the transgender community, particularly the transgender children, are four to five times that the average population, um, just, just astronomical for those types of reasons. So HIV has, is, is a problem. No, no question. It all comes down to having opportunities to but in, in, in a broader in a broad, broader sense as well, I mean, I know this is one, you know, uh, subunit of the of the population, but a lot of yeah. these articles were just talking about in general, too. Is that the case? Yeah. In some states, it is. In Louisiana, our rates of new HIV cases have gone down a little bit the past couple of years. And there's been a discussion on our end as to whether that's a legitimate a real decrease or whether that's due, you know, because of the pandemic, there wasn't as much testing going on as there normally is. And we're having discussions on our end about which one we think that is. But there are other states that have seen significant increases in HIV. Um, so that's where we stand now. You know, there's there's been a lot of good work in Louisiana. There's a number of hospital emergency departments here that do, you know, what they call opt-out testing, where mm -hmm. at a baseline, you know, people that walk in the door get tested for HIV unless they don't want to. And then you have a lot of increased screening and you catch a lot of cases. And then there's pretty good linkage, at least in the big cities in Louisiana, to clinics that can offer treatment. That's a gold standard practice. Um, you know, we've put a lot of energy into HIV in earlier years. I hope the decrease that we are realizing now is a legitimate one. I hope it's not just an artifact because of COVID, but I think we probably need another year or two of data to answer that. I know there are a lot of maintenance medications available out there if you are HIV positive. Have there been any studies as to the linkage of being a little, I guess, more careless uh, because, because of the availability of these um, HIV maintenance drugs? The best data out there, you know, <laughs> there's been incredible improvements in, in HIV drugs. The, the, the regimens have been greatly simplified now. There's combination pills, so people no longer have to take, you know, 10 or 12 pills a day at certain times. And in, because of that, people with HIV, when they remain on appropriate treatment, are living very, very long, very normal lives. One of the things that has come out, the data points, is that it's now indisputable that 
for people that have undetectable viral loads of HIV, meaning they're on treatment, and because they're on treatment, their virus is suppressed, they cannot transmit the virus to other people. They're not an infectious risk. So that's become an idiot in the HIV world. It's, it's known as U equals U. Undetectable virus equals untransmittable. So there's certainly been a lot of conversation around that. And, and, and if that, you know, as your question gets to, is influencing other behaviors, I don't know the answer to that. But I do know that the key to reducing transmission now is clearly identifying people who are HIV positive and getting them on regular appropriate treatment. Because once that virus level goes down to zero on treatment, they really are no longer an infectious risk, and it takes that risk off the table. Yeah. Got a text here, uh, Doc, as a follow-up to previous conversations that we had. We'll pivot to medications now and shortages. Is there a continuing shortage of ADD and ADHD medicine? There could be. I'm not. I'm not personally familiar with it. Um, I, I know we're talking about uh, there were rolling shortages of Adderall last year. I'm, I'm not sure if that's still the case. Um, it, it could be. I just have not. I've not been following that issue in the past few weeks that that closely. Or it hasn't risen to my desk. I'll say that. So I'm, I'm not sure about the ADHD medicines. So uh, we've talked about antibiotics. Um, I think uh, one that's at the forefront is erythromycin. Yeah, this is very frustrating, and this is another medication shortage that I don't think a lot of people know about, but it's, uh, it kind of hits to the heart of things that we take for granted right now, and that, that's why it's been such a frustration for me. So um, nearly every birth that happens, routine birth, erythromycin ointment, antibiotic ointment is applied very quickly after birth um, to to the, 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 the eyelid margin of the newborn baby, you know, within the first few hours. And it's to prevent um, ocular eye infections that, that could be transmitted from the mom. And, and one of the big ones actually is gonorrhea. And, you know, pregnant women can have gonorrhea and not know it. Louisiana has a lot of gonorrhea. We're the third highest gonorrhea rates in the country. And so there's a lot of undiagnosed gonorrhea. And when that does get transmitted to a newborn through their eyes, it can lead to blindness, lead to terrible complications. So this is standard routine practice in nearly every birth in the country, unless there's some reason not to do it. Erythromycin is an old medicine. It's inexpensive. You know, it's not some brand name medicine that makes a lot of money for the pharmaceutical industry. And because of that, there's not a lot of investment in its production. So over the past few weeks, a lot of birthing hospitals in the state have had challenges getting this very old, very inexpensive medicine that is essential to safe births. I mean, this is, this is routine practice in any birth around the country right now. We've not yet had a birth in the state where the hospital was unable to get that, but, um, you know, supplies are getting very low and we're working very hard with our federal partners to, to kind of ensure that we have some redundancy and, and, and mitigation strategy on this. But to me, you know, looking at all the problems we have, to have to be expending re- resources and time to deal with something like this, it just feels so, so silly given the, you know, where we are in medicine in this country to have such incredible resources on one hand, 
but to be dealing with a shortage of such a old, inexpensive, but essential medicine like this just really boggles my mind, Bill, to be honest so, with you. So just to put this in context, and, and then we're going to come back to the economic side of this, what would be the downstream implications if uh, the child was to contract gonorrhea in the eyes? They could go blind. It could, it could lead to lifelong blindness. Now, I don't think it's ever going to get to that because if a hospital were to actually run out of erythromycinoid, then the next step is to give the child an IV antibiotic, to give them, for example, ceftriaxone through an IV. But that means putting an IV into a one-day-old baby, which is which is far, far from ideal. So you can see, you know, I, I don't think it's going to get and, to and aren't, aren't there some born. implications to, for a newborn to be on antibiotics uh, intravenously as well? There probably are that we don't know. I mean, it, you know, yeah. every, every antibiotic has its toxicity profile, but we've never given, you know, IV antibiotics to you know, nearly every newborn baby in the country. You, you know, th- th- those type of things have never been done. Needless to say, the, the process of putting an IV in a newborn baby is not always easy and straightforward. Yeah. So it's not something and the that reason, we would want to do. The reason I ask, it, would just, it just seems to me, and this is so frustrating, um, that commercial insurers, um, you know, uh, the uninsured population and obviously the Medicaid population, and I'm sure there's a there's a disproportionate incident rate incidence rate uh, among those three uh, as it relates to this that that the downstream costs so are so incredibly high that we would come together and make sure that we wouldn't be facing these types of shortages. Um, you know that yeah. that that the government would ensure that there's somebody, whether it be you know, if you got to work with the major manufacturer to to develop subsidiary entities to that that this is what they do for these purposes, because in the end you save money, right? I mean, it just from an economic standpoint, it just makes so much sense to make sure that we have it available. Yeah, I think so. But I have realized, and this is, I think you know. We stay very close to our federal partners, and I, I find them to be very cooperative and helpful. But I don't think the federal health system is set up for these type of challenges. There's no real agency or, or department or section within a department that is geared up to look at what drug shortages may be coming down the pipeline and help develop solutions to it. Um, you've got different agencies that each do a very small slice of that, and no one does a comprehensive job, and no one does it particularly well. You know, the FDA as the regulator kind of tracks these drug shortages, and they have a website with a laundry list. I mean, you know, hundreds, a thousand drug shortages that, that they're tracking, but, but they're the regulator. They're not the ones that really help mitigate the problem. No one really is is set up to do that, and I think that's a structural shortcoming of the federal health system right now. And as you point out, we end up paying for it in spades on the back end. It would surely be worth our collective investment to set up a structure within the federal government to help mitigate these problems, identify 
shortages coming down the pipeline and help, you know, alleviate those shortages through whatever, you know, a number of means possible, but to do it well ahead of having to scramble on the back end like I think we're doing now with this one. Yeah, for me, when I see some of the things that we decide to make a priority and spend money on, as opposed to things like this, because we've had shortages in cancer drugs and, and everything mm-hmm. else, and I mean, there are people suffering out there. I mean, it just it just doesn't make much sense to me. But that I, I, I'll get off my soapbox. <laughs> <You know, it's, laughs> and I'm sure it drives you crazy too in public health, uh, for sure. Oh, We're visiting with Dr. Joe Cantor, State Health Officer for the State of Louisiana. We'll be right back, folks. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. It's the most anticipated WNBA season in history. And you know what that means. Court is back in session. Welcome to Queens of the Court, an Odyssey original podcast. I'm your girl, Cheryl Swoop. And I'm Jordan Robinson. All WNBA season long, we'll be bringing you interviews with star athletes, analysis on your favorite teams, and lots of hot takes. Order, order in the court. Follow and listen to Queens of the Court on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. 